In this episode of the St. Philip Institute podcast, we're going to continue our series on Advent. This time, we're going to look at the Annunciation to Mary and what the Old Testament roots are that are active beneath the surface. So please stick around and enjoy. Welcome to the St. Philip Institute podcast, where we explore the sources of the Catholic faith, including the scriptures, the documents of the Church, the teachings of the Second Vatican Council, and the lives and witness of the saints. St. John Paul II often said, Duke in Altum, set out into deep waters. And our goal here at the podcast is to help you do just that. We don't want to merely provide you with information. Instead, we seek to help you achieve a true transformation and to respond to the Lord's call in your life to live out the universal call to holiness. Welcome back to the St. Philip Institute podcast. My name is Luke Arredondo. I'm the director of faith formation here at the St. Philip Institute. Um, And we're continuing here our series um, for Advent. Um, This uh, episode, we're really going to look at Mary, uh, and her uh, role in Advent, which is obviously very significant, her role in Christmas, right, bringing Christ into the world. Um, in a particular way, I really want to read uh, the Annunciation from Luke's Gospel, um, which is only uh, 12 verses or something like that, and then um, help to open up for you um, some of the things that are sort of hidden beneath the surface, some of the background uh, that we can see if we have a little bit of a help um, sort of pointing us beyond um, sort of the the base level of the text. So that's really the goal is to just talk and think a little bit about the Annunciation um, and a a little bit slightly beyond that, but mostly focus on the Annunciation and just help us to see sort of with new eyes what Mary's um, task is uh, and what her response is to what the angel proclaims to her. So we're going to start by just entering into the gospel. So this is from Luke's gospel, chapter 1. We're going to read from verse 26 to 38, uh, and then, as I said, comment on a lot of the sort of details um, that are there. So in verse 26, we have uh, the story of Jesus' birth foretold. In the sixth month, um, this is the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, right? In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Hail, full of grace, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and considered in her mind what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and out of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I have no husband? And the angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. 
And behold, your kinswoman Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For with God nothing will be impossible. And Mary said, Behold, I am the handmaid of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. All right, there's a lot going on there, um, and that's why I, I said in the previous episode, this, these first couple chapters of Luke's Gospel, it's like his greatest hits. I mean, there's just nothing there that isn't just deep, deep, deep stuff that we've, you know, cherished. Um, and, and each Christmas, or each Advent and Christmas, as we, we read it, these these passages again, it's it's like you're hearing them for the first time, right? Um uh, and it's the beginning of Jesus's story in a certain way, um, and and I always find the beginnings of stories to be just something you can delight over every little detail because you can still grasp all of it. That's something that's really beautiful about the beginning of a movie or a book or something, especially if you know the story. You're in chapter one, all of all of the stuff that's about to happen that you know because you know the story well. It's all packed in really well, and you can sort of at one moment, see it all, make sense of it all, cherish it, hold it together. And then as it goes to unfold, there's all these different directions, um, and it can be tight to hard, rather, to hold it tightly together as it begins to unravel. So here at the beginning, uh, it's just it's just really beautiful. Everything's packed in, and, and it's, you can sort of see it in its unity and in its, in its pristine beauty uh, before it all starts to break apart. Um, and proceed to develop the way that it will. So I don't know, just personal way that I look at the beginnings of stories. Um, so what do we know about Mary here from this uh, little narration, these 12 verses? Well, uh, one of the things that, that that is right there in the text is that Gabriel has to go to Nazareth, right? Nazareth was not a major city, okay? It's a, it's a small basically insignificant village, and this is where, where Mary is from, and that's actually going to cause problems for Jesus later on. Uh, people are going to say, isn't this, you know, the son of the carpenter from Nazareth? And there's one person that even says, can anything good come from Nazareth? I mean, so this is the kind of reputation that uh, the city has, but yet this is where Gabriel is sent, because that's where Mary is, and this is where the Annunciation is going to be made, right? Of course, God always looks at things differently than we do, but from a from a human perspective, you know, going to Nazareth might might be like, you know, I live in a really tiny town, Overton. We have 2,200 people, and, um, you know, if you drive through there, you could miss it. You could just be like, I didn't see Overton. It's because it was, it was so small, right? Nazareth is this kind of a place. No one expects much from Nazareth. Um, beyond the fact that she's from Nazareth, we learn a few other basic things. First of all, she's betrothed um, to a man, uh, Joseph, from the house of David. And it's important that you know what a betrothal was in an ancient Jewish context, right? So to be betrothed actually involves a, a public ceremony where technically uh, and legally the man and woman become husband and wife, their spouses, uh, but they don't, they don't have their marriage celebration yet, right? So we're familiar with, you know, being in, you're either engaged or you're married, right? Uh, uh, and, and we distinguish like, well, if you're engaged, well, you're not married, right? And that's, that's true. You get engaged here today in our country, at least, 
that's different than being married. And you're, you're in fact, not in any kind of a way married. For an ancient Jew, though, to be betrothed was to say you are now married, but you haven't had the marriage celebration yet, and the wedding uh, you know, has not happened. There has not been consummation. So there is a distinction. What the betrothal means is your spouses, but you are not yet living in one house and sharing a house. Um, and typically this, this would last up to about a year. And it was really a chance for the husband to uh, find a house, build a house, make some sort of dwelling that they could then inhabit together as husband and wife after the sort of week-long celebration of their marriage, um, which would include, of course, the consummation. So she is, in fact, married, right, in a very technical sense, but she has not begun to live with Joseph yet. And this makes her you know, identity as a virgin uh, a little easier to understand. Um, but I, I think that oftentimes we, we speak of it like, well, they weren't married yet. And it's like, and in one sort of a way you could say that, but in a, in a Jewish uh, you know, sense at the time, they, they were married, uh, but they were still living apart. Another detail about her being betrothed um, is it it's very likely that she was a young teenager because this was the common age for betrothal at the time. Um, so she is from Nazareth, betrothed, which is sort of married but not living together. She's very young, likely. And then she marries a man from the house of David. Uh, and, and that's sort of a throwaway line if you're reading the gospel, if you're just, you know, powering through it, trying to, you know, get a summary or whatever. If you're studying for a test and it's like, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. Okay, house of David. All right, cool. But house of David means a lot for um, for the, the Jewish uh uh, background of of the scriptures. What is the house of David? Well, David was right the king of Israel. He was the covenant leader, and during his leadership, man Israel uh, was was just looking really good. Uh, it was strong, growing. People were coming from all over to find out about who was this God that they're worshiping, and it looked like the sort of universal kingdom that was promised to Abraham was finally going to be fulfilled in David's uh, kingdom. And he is, in fact, promised an eternal kingdom that he'll always have heirs on the throne. David's name was sort of synonymous with the peak of Israel as a people, right? Their their power, their holiness. David was a very holy man. Everything was awesome during David's reign, and the promise was that that would continue. And then, of course, that's not what winds up happening. I mean, right away, Solomon begins to be unfaithful to the demands of the covenant. He has all these riches and wives, and, and he builds up his army for military strength, not trusting in the Lord to do his fighting. All of that stuff happens, and slowly the kingdom begins to decline, right? So for Mary to be betrothed to a man from the house of David, sort of at one and the same time, it's great prestige and great shame. It's prestige because the house of David is, I mean, that's the house of David. That's, that's big time. But it's also, it's sort of not, right? Because thing, I mean, things aren't looking good. One imperial power after another is in charge, ruling over, sometimes destroying, imprisoning, you know, oppressing the people of Israel. And, and meanwhile, that lineage of David's house keeps going, but it's like, it looks like it doesn't mean anything anymore. Really poor 
poor analogy for this might be to say, you know, if you were a fan of the New York Yankees, you know, today, it's like, well, historically they've won whatever, 26 World Series titles, but it's been a long time since they've won a World Series. And uh, this year, I don't even think they made the playoffs, right? Uh, but they got Aaron Judge. Why can't they go to the playoffs? That kind of a, it's like, yeah, we're a great storied franchise, but my, we're not looking too good these days. So the House of David has this shame and prestige sort of at the same time. Now, um, so this is, you know, a little bit of background about who Mary is. What happens after we get this description? So the angel comes to her and says, Hail, full of grace, the Lord is with you. And she is greatly troubled at the saying. Why would she be troubled at the saying? <laughs> well, there's there's something unique about this. For her to be said, you are full of grace, is a totally unique gift. Um this 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 is something that's in in large sense without precedent. Um, to be full of grace is a tremendous blessing. Why am I full of grace? But then to say the Lord is with you really actually says a lot. Um, and we might see the Lord is with you as we read the gospel and go, oh, the Lord is with you and with your spirit, or and also with you if you haven't been to Mass in a long time, right? The Lord is with you. We know like, oh, I know how to respond to that. But what is Mary's response? We'll go back up again. He said to her, he came to her and said, Gabriel said, Hail, full of grace, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying. Why is she troubled at the saying, the Lord is with you? It's because in the Bible, the Lord is with you is sort of marching orders. Um, When someone is told the Lord is with you, it means they are being commissioned for some very significant task. One good example of this is Moses, okay? Moses was given a huge task. He's supposed to somehow liberate Israel from slavery in Egypt. He doesn't even consider himself to be much of a speaker. He stutters. He doesn't know, why am I, what do you want me to do this for? How am I going to accomplish this tremendous thing of getting Pharaoh to, you know, let us go worship? And the Lord says, I will be with you. Right, so for Mary, who is by all all accounts that we can tell a very faithful Hebrew uh, woman, she knows the scriptures. She she is you know it, it, following the covenant. For her to hear the Lord is with you means oh oh no, <laughs> I'm being called for something. I am being sent out to accomplish something that the Lord wants me to do, and he's going to help me do it. But if he needs to help me in this sort of a way, it must be quite a task. So she is uh, afraid, she's troubled at the saying, and she wonders what sort of greeting it might be. So then the angel in response, obviously knowing that she is uh, afraid and troubled, says, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Again, favor with God, that, that to find favor is a big deal, right? Who are some other people who have found favor with God? Well, Noah is the first one who found favor with God. He was saved from the flood because he was going to be part of the restoration of creation after the flood wipes out, um, you know, all of the sin, right? We never really can get all of it because human beings are sinful. But Noah finds favor with God, and he's asked to do something pretty big time, right? Abraham found favor with God. He was asked to leave his land. At one point, was asked to sacrifice his son. 
he found favor with God. Moses found favor with God and had to lead the exodus, right? Had to lead the people through the desert, had to have the confrontation with Pharaoh. David found favor with God. Um, He had to conquer Goliath and inherit the kingdom, lead it, and all these things. So if Mary is told the Lord is going to be with her, and oh, hey, but don't worry, you have found favor with God, that means quite a lot. That's a that's a really big deal. Uh and it it means oof, okay, I have a I have a big responsibility. Also interesting, typically the people who have found favor with God, or many of them, not all of them, are covenant mediators. Right? They're they're mediating a covenant. Mary is preparing to give us the Lord who will be the ultimate mediator of the eternal covenant. All right. So all of these things are packed into just these these first few verses, right? The angel said to her, do not be afraid, you have found favor with God. And then Gabriel goes on to clarify, you know, what sort of favor. So behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, you shall call his name Jesus. I want you to notice this. The angel says, you will behold, uh, sorry, you behold, you will conceive a child in your son, right? You will call a child in your son, a son in your uh, womb and call him Jesus, Then he will be called great, the son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign forever. His kingdom will have no end. He says all of those things. Then Mary says, how can this be since I have no husband? So I want you just to to notice, the angel is giving a description of a child she is going to bear and what that child will do. He has not said uh, this is going to be a child that is born through the power of the Holy Spirit, but she wants to know, hey, if I'm going to have a child and I've not yet consummated my marriage, how is that going to be? She seems to have some sort of intuition that it's going to be a child born in a different way. And then the angel says to her, after this general description of her son being named Jesus, he will be the Most High, he will have the throne of his father David, all of these things. Then Mary questions, how can this be since I have no husband? And the angel responds, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So she learns of sort of the virgin birth that she's going to have only after initially asking her question. And What's interesting is—one uh, of the interesting things, anyways, about this conversation is the description given to the to, to Jesus, right? You will have a son, and he will be named Jesus, matches very, very well with the description of the long-awaited heir to the throne of David who's called the Messiah, right? So there's a lot more than I even have time to explain uh, in this in this episode— a lot of connections between Luke's gospel and the second book of Samuel. The second book of Samuel narrates a lot of the story of David. Um, and in that discussion of David, you see a lot of parallels to the way Luke describes Jesus, right? So there's this sort of very obvious connection, and, and there's there's other ways, and we'll, we'll talk about one more um, after we finish this discussion, ways in which this is sort of clear in the text that Luke is basically, as an author, assuming you know the story of 2 Samuel, and writing his account of Jesus 
in a way that's going to draw out the the idea that well, Jesus must be seen as the long-awaited heir to the throne of David, who is the Messiah. So, in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and Luke chapter 1, you see sort of a parallel track of describing the heir to the throne of David. So, in 2 Samuel 7 verse 9, we see David being told, I will make for you a great name. Luke chapter 1 he will be great. He, Mary's son, will be great. David will have a great name. He, Jesus, will be great. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, we see this notion of divine sonship. I will be his father, and he shall be my son, talking about the heirs of the Davidic throne. Here in Luke 1, Jesus is said, will be called the Son of the Most High. Right, so God, in in a very real way, will be His Father, um, similar to the description given to the Davidic heir in two Samuel seven. In Second Samuel seven, uh, also there's this description of inheriting the throne of the kingdom of David. So Second Samuel seven verse thirteen, God is saying to David, "I will establish the throne of His kingdom forever." In Luke chapter 1, the Lord will give the Lord God will give to him, to Jesus, the throne of his father David. This inheritance of the throne of David is supposed to ring loudly in the ears of the audience of the gospel as a reverberation, as a reminder, a recapitulation, a you know, superabundant fulfillment of the promise that was made in the Old Covenant. Here, it's finally being fulfilled through Jesus, this child born through the power of the Holy Spirit to Mary in this obscure village of Nazareth. There's an eternal dimension to this kingdom in 2 Samuel 7. 2 Samuel 7 verse 16, we read that your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever. In Luke chapter 1, Jesus is described as, as Luke says, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Right, so a Jew uh, who knows their scriptures really well, uh, reading Luke's gospel should be sort of lit up that, oh, all of these things, these promises that were made for the Davidic heir, which is supposed to be sort of an everlasting kingdom, they're finally being fulfilled through Mary. And this is why I pointed out Mary is marrying, she's betrothed, she is the spouse already, of a man from the house of David. So even in a legal fashion, Jesus being born in that household, you know, is of the house of David. So this, as I said, is 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 one place um, where you see uh, Mary um, and and Jesus being described in ways that are reminiscent of uh, things that happened in um, ancient Israel with respect to promises of the Messiah, right? So there's there's another dimension to this as well, um, and that is to see Mary and her description in the Gospels, um, in in the Gospel of Luke, as a sort of old. I'm sorry, as a sort of Ark of the Covenant. So the Ark of the Covenant um, in the Old Testament um, contained within itself three very important things. It contained the tablets of the law, 
written by the hand of God. It contained the staff of the high priest Aaron, um, you know, by which he he, he ruled, and, and and also contained some of the manna, which the Israelites were, you know, sustained in their journey by eating the manna. Mary and the ancient church fathers um, point this out. Mary is is sort of a superior ark of the covenant in a sort of way. And how is that? Well, the Old Testament contained the tablets of the law. Mary contained within her womb the one who could interpret the law and teach the new law. So the Old Testament, the Old Commandments, sorry, the Ten Commandments are very important. The Old Law is important. But Jesus is the one who can say, you have heard it said, you shall not kill, but I say to you, right? Giving an, an, an authoritative interpretation, a definitive interpretation of the law, and who can teach the new law on his own authority. So the old Ark of the Covenant, right, contains tablets of the law. Mary contains the one who brings the law in his very person. The old Ark of the Covenant contained the staff of Aaron, uh, the high priest. Mary brings to earth the king of kings and the true priest and bears him in her womb, right? So we no longer have merely the symbol or the staff of Aaron, which is a symbol of his, his high priestly authority, but the true high priest, Jesus himself, a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, as we read um, in the scriptures. Then, in the Old Testament, the Ark of the Covenant contains the manna. Mary, in her womb, holds the Lamb of God, who gives us the true bread from heaven, which is his own flesh, which will be our guide in the exodus from this world to the eternal kingdom of heaven, not merely in the journey from Egypt to the promised land. So the manna was very important for the Israelites, a huge part of the exodus. Mary is going to give us the Lamb of God, who at the one and the same time is the Lamb, and who gives us his flesh as bread to eat. Um, then you, you can see this even in the Annunciation, right? So David in 2 Samuel 6 travels with the Ark of the Covenant to the hill country of Judah. Mary has to go in haste to visit Elizabeth. And where does she live? In the hill country of Judah, right? So the Ark is brought to the hill country. Mary goes to the hill country. David um, says, uh, you know, David is, is said, Blessed be the people in the name of the Lord. And he asks this question, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? What do we read in the Annunciation? Elizabeth saying, why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? So he is, David asks, how can the ark come to me? Elizabeth, how can the mother of my Lord come to me? Um, in the transportation of the ark of the covenant in 2 Samuel 6, David leaps in the presence of the Lord, and the Lord's presence is contained in the ark. John the Baptist leaps with joy in Mary's womb at the sound of her greeting, right? The ark stays in Judah for three months in 2 Samuel 6, and in Luke's gospel, Mary remains with Elizabeth in the hill country of Judah for three months. So there are, there are a lot of layers um, to uh, unpack as you as you look at the, the the story of the Annunciation and really the in, the entire infancy accounts um, that that are that are floating right there beneath the surface if we have sort of the eyes to see. Um, this is one of the reasons why uh, Luke's gospel I, I think is particularly rich, it's because it's it's written 
um, in a way that sort of points us to these Old Testament roots. There's 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 more um, that that we could sort of dive into um, in the Annunciation account. For for instance, um, if you look uh, back at the top in in the uh, the verses here. Um, the angel said, how can this, or Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I have no husband? And the angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. That that sense of being overshadowed um, is very similar language to the way that the Holy Spirit or the or the Lord's presence overshadows the temple. Um, so you can, you can see the temple contains the Lord's presence, right? And Mary is going to contain the Lord's presence. All of this really packs in so much for us about our, our, our understanding of what's happening as we get close to Christmas um, through Advent, but it also helps us clarify some of our Christology, some of our Mariology. So Mary is giving birth to the Lord himself. She is the mother of God, the Theotokos, and Jesus is a human person who also has a divine nature, right? All of these things are sort of like in concentrated form at the beginning of Luke's gospel. And it's it's one of the things that just never never ceases to enrich me as I go back and and look again at the story of the Annunciation and the birth and everything. All of these, again, this it's just a little personal quirk. The way I try to look at the beginning of, of any story, I always seem to, to to appreciate the beauty of the beginning of something because it's easy to sort of kind of put it all in one place and kind of hold it tightly. This is why I think um, when you have a newborn or, or a little baby, it's so it's not just that they are small and it's nice to hold them and, and it feels awesome to hold a baby. Uh, there's this sense that you are containing within yourself like all the goodness of this child. It's all packed in right here. It's all potential and it's all beautiful how it's going to play out, but right now I just get to hold it, you know. And I mean, I have I have five children, and my oldest is twelve. I can't can't hold my twelve year old that close to me. I can still pick her up because she's not she's not incredibly tall, not incredibly heavy, uh, but I can't get my arms around her and hold her the way that I that I could when I was a child. And um, as as I look every time I go back to the beginning of Luke's gospel, this is this is sort of the image that comes to me. Is I mean, we're and we're reading the account of the birth of a child too, right? Mary gets to hold him in her hands, um, but it, there's a sort of spiritual way in which we can hold this story uh, in our hands because it's it's the beginning, and, and and it hasn't all happened yet, but we know it's going to. But we want to just hold on to it for that little bit. Um, I want to point out one more thing about this Annunciation. Um, uh, at the end of the Annunciation account, verse 36, Behold, your kinswoman Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is a sixth month uh, with her who was called barren. For with God nothing will be impossible. And then Mary said, Behold, I am the handmaid of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. Her response to this tremendous thing of being overshadowed by the Lord's presence, conceiving a child by the Holy Spirit, being told the Lord will be with you and you have found favor with God is, I am the handmaid of the Lord, let it be done to me according to your word. This absolute submission to this sort of impossible mission that she is being called to. And this is one of the reasons why the church will point to Mary as the the, the first disciple, as the perfect disciple, because her response is always perfect submission to the Lord's will in her life. More we could say, Certainly, um, but uh, I think we'll, we'll we'll wrap up here with just kind of emphasizing Mary's humility and submission in response to what the Lord calls her to, 
Um, and that if we have a sense of these sort of Old Testament roots, um, it can help us to read these stories better. Again, and I told you I'd mentioned it a bunch of times, I really I would encourage you, if you're interested in this general sort of take on Luke's Gospel and is preparing for Advent and Christmas, check out this book by Ed Street, Dawn of the Messiah, The Coming of Christ in Scripture. There are so many more things in this book that I would, would like to bring out. I can't do them all, uh, really, honestly. Read this book if you're looking for some deeper preparation for Advent, because uh, it, it's tremendous. It does a good job of bringing out the things that I've explained here, but then a whole host of other things. Um, and it's eminently readable, very short. I think the whole thing is less than 200—yeah, it's way less than 200 pages. 150? 100, yeah, 155. 161, including the footnotes, all right? Um, so certainly manageable um, as you prepare for Advent. Hope you've enjoyed this episode. I encourage you to stick around as we've got a little bit more to do as we prepare for uh, the coming of Christ at Christmas. Uh, but thanks for sticking around for this episode, and God bless. God bless.